morning, would you read with me from uh, the seventh chapter of Acts, verse 54, through the first part of chapter 8, verse 1. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we might take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have new birth, a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This was the Gettysburg Address that Abraham Lincoln gave in November 9th, 1863. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Memorial Day was a holiday that was started shortly after the Civil War. And, you know, in God's providence... Uh, God allowed that we should be studying this particular text on this particular day, 
uh, the day before Memorial Day 2022. And I would just draw a brief similarity between this text and, and uh, the speech that I just read, and of course, bringing to our mind those who have fallen in defense of the freedoms that we hold. I mean, I'm standing up here preaching the word of God, and many of our brothers and sisters around the world are not afforded this luxury because of the tyrannical governments under which they live. But our uh, people from various generations in this country have fought and even died, which is what Memorial Day is all about, those who gave their lives so that we could be free. And I would argue that um, in order for a country like the United States of America to be great going forward, to, to continue in that vein of freedom, for it to function well, we need people who are so committed to their, to the values that we hold dear, the freedoms that we hold dear, that they're willing to lay down their lives. And this morning I've entitled the sermon, uh, When the Church Functions Well. Because I would argue that in order for the church to function well, that men and women, like Stephen, are what is necessary. Because I, I, I'm pointing to Stephen this morning as a particularly good witness to Jesus Christ, and I'll explain that as we go forward. It wasn't necessarily that he died, is the reason that I'm pointing to him as such a good witness, but that that he continued to witness even in the face of great difficulty, which did end up and result in his death. So the question I'm going to try to answer this morning, or I think the text answers, is why was the stoning of why is the stoning of Stephen an example of the church functioning well? Remember, this is the beginning, very beginning of the church. Uh, Stephen is one of the first deacons called. He was first on the list that was read in Acts chapter six. Uh, and now Stephen, who has just been out there ministering the word, working signs and wonders, has been arrested by the Sanhedrin. And last week we studied the speech that he gave to the Sanhedrin. And can I, I think it's a profound understatement to say that that speech was not well received. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's look at about six different reasons why the stoning of Stephen was an example for the church to follow because it was an example of the church functioning well. First of all, Stephen understood the target of his witness. It says in verses 54 and 57, now when they had heard these things, that's the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of the day, when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth against, ground their teeth at him. It says in verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Stephen was targeting his witness at those who are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who are not filled with the Holy Spirit. I find it very interesting. Uh, I, this is my malfunction, I think, this whole notion of grinding your teeth at someone. But the Bible has lots of things to say about that. Psalm 35, 16, for example, says, Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Luke 13, 28, Jesus is talking. It says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, these people, 
the people that Stephen is, are, is witnessing to is, are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And how can I say that for sure? Well, the text brings it out. The case in point is their emotional response uh, to Stephen. They, they're enraged. They're grinding their teeth. They're crying out with a loud voice and stopping their ears. You know, I don't know what vision, what picture comes to your mind when you think about this, but the picture that I think of is, la, 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 I can't hear you. I don't want to hear this anymore. La, 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 la. Like a child, right? Like a child. Why do I say that an emotional response points to the fact that they're not filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it talks about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But before that, it talks about the works of the flesh. Here's what it says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Here it is. Fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And I want to highlight that, that phrase, self-control. As followers of Jesus Christ, uh, I, th I think I've said this before, uh, men, uh, m many of you out there have either or still are struggling with uh, anger, pride, and lust, and specifically I want to zero in on anger. I think that, I think that even, uh, well not even, but I've struggled in the past with anger and I can tell when I'm sinfully angry because my response is all emotion and no reason, right? It's all emotion and no self-control. And um, these are things that we need to grow in if we're followers of Jesus Christ. So my thinking is that if the Pharisees were so enraged at Stephen's speech, what they should have done is they should have reasoned from the Scripture, they should have gone back and said, Stephen, okay, I hear you made references to Joseph, to Moses, to the temple, you know, Abraham. Let's go back and let's look at the scripture and let's see if what you're saying is true. That would be reasonable, self-controlled. Instead, they're so beholden to their idolatrous worship of the temple and the Old Testament law, forsaking the not, not giving even a possibility that the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that the, that the law pointed to, that the temple pointed to, that their response was 100% emotional. And so there was no possibility of a self-controlled uh, self situation. By the way, this is really good advice for you. If you're dealing with someone, if you're dealing with someone in your life who you have a dispute with or whatever, I would, I would counsel you to reason from the scripture. Okay, well, fine, we're having a disagreement. Let's get together, let's sit down, let's see what God has to say about what happened here. And uh, if the person gives you uh, an emotional response strictly, uh, I would never talk to you ever again, you pig, you know, whatever. Um, talking about myself there. Um, then, then perhaps that's an, an indicator that they're not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Again, the Proverbs, the wisdom literature has things to say about this. Uh, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So we're in a situation here. Stephen has made the argument earlier in his speech in uh, chapter 7, verse 51, 
that these men were men of uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears. And I tried to put that into today's language. Uh, I, I took that to mean uh, that these men are choosing to believe only that which they want to believe and hear only that which they want to hear. And if they hear anything else from what they want to hear or, believe, or, or are told to believe anything uh, other than what they want to believe, they're going to react with emotion, and they do. And these are the people that Stephen targets in his witness. Now, my understanding of Scripture is that we are to, as we, as we go about this life and as we're trying to witness to people, we're, we're searching for, and I've told you this before, people of peace. The Bible refers to them as people of peace. Um, let's see, that's Luke chapter 10. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 talks about a person of peace. In other words, uh, if you're trying to witness to someone and talk to them about Jesus or, or spiritual things or whatever, and they say, look, I don't want to talk to you about this. Okay, stop talking and get out of my face. Our response to that is not to grab them by the clothes and hold them in their seat while we say, no, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and you're going to listen. That's not a person that you're not, that's not good, okay? Don't do that. But you're, look, you're seeking for people who will engage in the conversation, right? Um, I'm talking to someone right now in my life who is a person of peace. They're not a believer, clearly, self-proclaimed. I do not follow Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. But they are willing to have the conversation and eager to do so, and I'm, I'm greatly enjoying that. So it seems like this text is a contradiction because I, I think Stephen is a model of witness. And it seems like you might say to me, Pastor Scott, this seems like a contradiction. Clearly, these men are not people of peace, the Sanhedrin. Uh, in their reactions, they're not people of peace. And so why, why are you saying Stephen is such a great example of witness in this text? Here's the difference. Here's the difference. Normally, when we go out and we're witnessing to people, this is something that we're voluntarily engaging in and they're voluntarily engaging in, and that's fine. Stephen has been arrested. Stephen has been arrested and brought before the authorities, and now he really has three options. Lie to get out of it. Be silent. And here's the test question. Can he be silent and be a witness? Think about that. Or he can simply tell the truth, despite the consequences that may come. Stephen decides that he's been detained, he's been arrested, and he's going to tell the truth. This is a key difference, right? Don't get arrested on purpose, but if you get arrested and you, get, and you are told, you need to be quiet about what you're saying, you need, to, you need to recant what you're saying. This is kind of that Martin Luther moment. If you know anything about the history of Martin Luther's life, at one point he was taken, <clears throat> to, he was, he was taken to the Diet of Worms in Germany. And before the Holy Roman Emperor and other high officials within the Roman Catholic Church, they placed a whole bunch of his publications on a table and they said, now if you recant of all this, you can live. But if you don't, you're in trouble. Now, the, the, the regional governor there had, had secured a guarantee that, uh, that if he failed to recant, that he could go back home peacefully, but then they were going to hunt him down. And Martin Luther would not recant because it would have been untruthful to do so. So, in this moment, his, the subject or the, uh, the target of his witness is the Sanhedrin. The subject of his witness is also something that he got right. 
It says verse, in verse 55, verse 56, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, so he saw it, and then he said it, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, what do we say about repetition? The author is trying to emphasize something here, right? So he saw it, and then the author immediately says that he said it. So it's in there twice. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The, target, the, the subject of his witness, of Stephen's witness, was simply Jesus. Jesus. When he had the opportunity to speak, what came out of his mouth was about Jesus. It was true in his speech. Now, did he back up and give a long historical context and then said, this Jesus is the one that we're talking about and you crucified him? Yes, he did. But in this, in this moment when he knows they're, they're hooping and hollering, they're gnashing their teeth at him, they're very inflamed and excited, he doesn't try to calm things down by telling them what they want to hear. He simply testifies and witnesses about Jesus. This verse is going to come up later in the, in the sermon as well. But remember what Acts 1.8 says. Jesus told him, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Anybody know what the Greek word for witness is? It's martyr. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in one of the most spine-tingling verses in all of Scripture, especially as you're studying this text, this, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Who wrote Corinthians? Paul. What was his name before that? Saul. Who was present at the stoning of Stephen, giving his approval? And who prayed for all the people as he was being stoned to death? Stephen, my brain starts to melt a little bit and run out of my ears when I read texts like this in the context of the stoning of Stephen. It's amazing what God has done in the lives of sinful people. Paul is a testimony of that. Stephen is a testimony of that. We're Each one of us who are followers of Jesus are a testimony of what God can do with a sinner. So Jesus was the, was the subject of his witness. And, and I just want to say, this is, this is not good sermon form. What I'm about to do is not good sermon form. I'm going to make an argument from silence, which is not good logic. Okay, so I'm admitting that ahead of time. But I put it in here because this would have been my proclivity. My proclivity would have been to rail on the... I would, if I was put myself in Stephen's shoes, I would have begun to rail on the corrupt leadership. You guys, what are you doing? You're violating Old Testament law to convict me of something... You know, you bunch of corrupt Sanhedrin Pharisees and Sadducees. That would have been my proclivity. Stephen did not lose focus on being a witness for Christ. He understood that these men were so emotionally heightened that they weren't going to listen to a rational argument about their corruption. So he simply testified about Jesus. Now, couple things. I'm going to use language of the culture today to try to get my point across. So prepare yourselves. This is not, this is not language that I would normally use. 
But in that moment, when Stephen, you know, looks up and he sees God, uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and then he says it. In saying the words, I, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, you have to understand that to these Jewish men, to these Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this would have been, here it is, extraordinarily triggering. Because in saying that, they're saying that Jesus, Stephen is saying Jesus is on the same level as God. To them was blasphemy. To them was deplorable. To them, he took a hyped up uh, uh, emotional crowd and just threw gas on the fire. And, but that was the level of commitment that he had to not, uh, to testify about Jesus. Um, it's important, I mean, back to the corruption thing, it's, you know, it's important that we uh, hold our leadership to account, church leadership, government leadership, whatever, um, the, the thing that I think about with corrupt leadership is, is Al Capone. Uh, not, not that he was a corrupt leader. He was a corrupt leader. But I would have imagined that if you were the, the law enforcement agencies back in his day, you would have said to yourselves, you, you would have been tempted to say to yourselves, we know Al Capone is ordering these hits. We know that he's set up this organized crime syndicate. We know that he's the man behind it. We just can't, we don't have the receipts to trace him back to the, to the crime. So the temptation would have, been to, would have been probably just to take him out because that would have been uh, overall maybe the better thing to do in their mind. The ends justifies the means. But no, they waited until they got him for something, and I think they ended up getting him for tax evasion and putting him in jail where he died. So, you know, good leadership is important, but that wasn't the focus of what Stephen was trying to get at. His focus was on Christ. Thirdly, the power behind his witness, the power behind our witness. Um, verse 55 and 56, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He was empowered by God the Holy Spirit, right? He was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Now, again, in another spine-tingling, uh, you know, just an interesting text, turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. It's too long to put up on the screen. So Matthew chapter 10. And what we see Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 10 is essentially what Stephen is living out right before our eyes. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for, you will, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother to, over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for each for it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Stephen is just living this out. He's been drugged before this council, all kinds of false accusations levied against him, and now they mean to kill him. And still, uh, he, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he receives this vision. And then he speaks this vision. And by the way, remember what Jesus said in Mark 14, 62, when he was on trial and about to be executed, he was asked a question and he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the cloud, with the clouds of heaven. Everything that Jesus says, has said, is coming true in Stephen's life. By the way, there's a, there's a difference between this text in Mark 14, 62, and the text in Acts chapter 7. Did you notice it? It has to do with Jesus' position. In Mark, 42, or Mark 14, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But what's he doing in Acts 7? He's standing. Now, there's a couple of different schools of thought on that, and I'll just give them to you real quick. Uh, one is that Jesus is standing because he's about to receive Stephen. And he's going to welcome him into heaven. But, but the other possibility, and you know, we don't know for sure, this has been a speculation, but the other possibility is that um, because Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, that he's there, and Scripture makes it clear that he's there in a role of advocate. He's advocating on our behalf. In other words, when, when one of Jesus' followers sins, it's almost like, you know, you can envision Jesus leaning over to God the Father and saying, I've got that. That's on me. And so it could be that, similar to a courtroom, Jesus stood up to lean over to the Father and to say, this man is mine. His sin is on me. Don't know. It's just interesting that Stephen's vision, in Stephen's vision, he saw him standing so the power behind his witness is God the Holy Spirit active in his life. But the fourth thing that we see in the text is the prayer of our witness, the prayer of our witness. Now, again, put yourself in Stephen's shoes. You've been falsely, you've been, uh, falsely sentenced, accused, whatever. Everybody's hooting and hollering. They're gnashing their teeth against you. They're probably calling you blasphemer and other various asundry names. And you know, you know you're 100% confident that that these guys are in the wrong. What would be your prayer in that moment? What would be the temptation for you to pray? Lord, call fire down from heaven and consume, just like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Lord, call down fire and just whatever. Stephen is a follower of Jesus Christ. So he prays very similar prayers. In fact, they're almost identical prayers to what Jesus prays when he is being crucified. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That would have been another triggering thing, by the way. He doesn't say, God, receive my spirit. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And so we see Stephen praying for himself, just like Jesus did, right? Jesus prayed, uh, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, uh, he breathed his last. Then we see Stephen also praying for others. Just like Jesus did in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where we read this. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. We're going to circle back to this prayer, that these prayers that Stephen makes in a moment. But let's just move on. The fifth thing that we see in this text is the sacrifice of our witness. The end of verse 60 says this, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's, he died. He died. Now, I'm going to say something, and I don't mean to step on any toes, but, but it's just something to think about. In our Western civilization, in, our, in the United States of America, we put a very high premium on the preservation of life. I think we all know that. We have a whole system. I mean, if somebody in this room you know, falls down, passed out. I mean, we all know what to do, right? We've been trained. You, you get out your phone, you call 911, you tell them, you give them some details of what's happening. Immediately, a, uh, a very speedy vehicle with lights and sirens all outfitted with people in that vehicle that know what they're doing arrive on the scene and take care of the situation. Now, in our congregation, we have medical professionals, so they, they're probably going to roll up their sleeves and get to work and try to assess the situation and bring help. But then that, the, that team of people will come in, they'll assess the situation, they'll do some things to try to help that person out and then whisk them away. And if it's really bad, once they get over to the hospital, they'll, there's a whole other system in place to put them on a helicopter and fly them to a bigger hospital with more skilled people and you get the idea. We put a great premium on the preservation of life we have systems and procedures and protocols and to set up to do this. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing for us to try to, to do that. But I want to change your frame of your thinking for just a minute. Maybe, just maybe, it would be good for us occasionally to think about this. Not how do I prolong my life as long as possible. Again, I'm... I, I'm all for being healthy, eating right, diet, exercise, good sleep. Sleep is important. Sleep is key. Those are all good things. But instead, maybe we should give some thought to this. What would be a good reason for me to spend my life? What would be a good cause for me to lay it down? Well, if you ever think about that. Given the opportunity and in, in given the circumstances, where would I take this one thing that I only have one of, one thing that once it's gone, it's gone in terms of physical life on the earth. Once I lay that down, I, I take that back. That was theologically wrong because we will be resurrected in Christ, right? So the, the, this sinful, sinful body that I have... <laughs> Once that's gone, it's gone. What do I spend that on? Stephen apparently thought that he was in a situation where his witness 
the witness for Jesus in this particular situation was worth it because he did not attempt to get out of it, didn't lie his way out of it, didn't, wasn't silent. He simply bore witness for Christ and he laid it down. Stephen had an understanding of life that God is in control. I don't know about you, I'm probably going to be sitting there in Stephen's shoes and I'm going to be asking, about, well, let's see, I've got a wife, I've got four children, I've got payments that need to be made, I've got a job that needs to be taken care of, I've got meetings coming up this week. I mean, I've got a whole, there's a whole structure here built out to, to, uh, of, of responsibilities that I have. Who's going to take care of those responsibilities? Apparently, Stephen's, I mean, Stephen was a deacon. He had Probably in the coming days, he had to oversee the distribution of food to the widows, right? He had an important task. And yet, Stephen understood that his job in that moment was simply to obediently and humbly witness and to let God do with that whatever he would do, which we'll talk about in a minute. And he did it all the way, like I said, to death. It was all the way obedience. Here's a couple of verses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 says, uh, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It just talks about the, um, how far are you willing to go, right, to, to do battle uh, with your sin in this life. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us, well, you haven't gone all the way yet. Secondly, uh, just a reminder of what Jesus said, that if anyone wants to follow me, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, which I just want to remind everyone is the very instrument of torture and death that Jesus experienced. Take that up and follow me. And so it's important for us as Christians to once in a while ask ourselves, you know, what would be a worthy cause for me to lay this thing down? What would be, a, what would be the situation that I would find myself in where I, the crowd is against me, everyone's speaking against me, and I'm just going to simply and lovingly continue to speak the truth and let God have the consequences. Finally, the fallout of our witness. Now, this, this goes a bit beyond the text, but it's, it's coming soon, so I thought I'd include it. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says this, And Saul approved of his execution and saw approved of his execution. Now let's talk about that execution just for a minute before we, we wrap this up. You notice a key difference between the execution of Jesus Christ and Saul's execution. If you don't, I'll tell you what it is. That remember, the Sanhedrin did not have the authority to kill someone. They're under Roman occupation. And so with Jesus, they followed the law. They went through their court, their ecclesiastical, their, their religious court. And when they had convicted him on their charges, then they went to Pontius Pilate and tried to get him convicted by the Romans for insurrection, right? For claiming to be the king of kings, yeah, king of the Jews. And they were successful, and it was all a rodeo and a, you know, kangaroo court, but they were successful in getting what they wanted accomplished, accomplished but they had to have Roman permission to do it. And with Stephen, Stephen looks a lot more like mob violence. In other words, there's no indication in this text, this is an argument from Silas, but there's no indication in this text that they had Roman approval to do this. They just took him out, enraged, and, and killed him. 
But it says in the text that Saul approved of his execution. And we don't know. There's a couple of different schools of thought there, too, that either Saul was just, you know, kind of giving everybody the nod, like, yep, this is the right thing. We ought to be doing this. Or that, that actually before they drug him out of the city, somebody piped up and said, all in favor of stoning this guy to death, raise your hand. And he was one, that, he was one of them that raised his hand. Don't know. Don't know. All we know is that the Bible makes it very clear that he was approving of this. Now, let me just say this. Again, this goes back to God's sovereignty. When you're in a situation, when you're in a difficult situation, and you're in the thick of it, I mean, you're sitting there, every, the whole Sanhedrin is angry with you, and you're sitting there trying to bear witness. We don't have the benefit to know how it will turn out. We just don't. We have accounts in God's word where we get to see the full, you know, before, during, and after. But in this life, if we're called upon to witness, we don't know how it's going to turn out, what it's going to, what's going to be the fallout of the situation. I just simply want to point your attention to the fallout of this particular situation. The first thing is the personal impact. And I just want to remind you that in two different occasions in this text, Saul is mentioned. Saul, who would later be renamed Paul, because on the road to Damascus, as we're going to get to that here in a few weeks, on the road to Damascus, Paul is, uh, Saul is going to be converted. He's going to have an encounter with Jesus, and he is going to begin to follow Jesus, and he's going to become known as the Apostle Paul, the sent one by Jesus Christ named Paul. And he's going to go on to be, arguably, the greatest church planter in all of the scriptures. I, I, I count at least 14 churches that he planted, he and his cohorts. And I just wonder, this is, like, this is on my list of questions. I don't know if you guys keep a list of these. Do you, do you guys keep a list of questions you're going to ask God when you get to heaven? Does anybody have? No? Oh, do that. It's fun. This is on my list of questions that I'm going to ask God when I get to heaven. God, how did you use that prayer of Stephen in Paul's life? That prayer that he uttered right as he was being stoned to death, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What connection did you make between that prayer, God, and the conversion and your use of Paul? I don't know. But I, I, I sure do enjoy believing that if, if uh, Stephen doesn't pray that prayer, perhaps God taps somebody else. I don't know. That's, that starts, your brain starts to melt when you think about stuff like that. Now, we haven't reached this point yet, but back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know if, if, you're, if you've got an ESV Bible and you're reading this part of Acts 7 along with me, then in Acts 8, beginning in verse 4, there's a text, and above that text is a header that's not part of the scripture, but that's what the editors of the ESV Bible have put in. And it says, in my Bible, Philip proclaims Christ in where? Samaria. Where are we at now? We're in Jerusalem. So somehow Stephen's martyrdom, his death, is going to cause Christians to leave Jerusalem because there's a bad scene there. Now, the text is going to tell us that the apostles are going to stay in Jerusalem, but, but 
the, the, a lot of Jesus' followers are going to leave Jerusalem and they're going to start witnessing where they're going. And we're, we're starting to hear reports of that they're witnessing in Samaria, which is exactly in line with what God had said, what Jesus said, that they would be witnesses to the ends of the earth, but in Samaria is one of the places. This just calls to my mind Acts chapter 37, or Genesis, sorry, Genesis 37 through 50. The, the whole thing, which I find interesting, it, that's the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 to 50 is the story of Joseph. And what happened to Joseph? Uh, Stephen mentioned it in his speech. They, his brother sold him into slavery, and yet he ascended to power in Egypt, and God used him to collect all this food, and then when there was a, a famine in the land, he was able to feed not only Egypt, but he was able to feed the house of Jacob or the house of Israel, however you want to say it, but he was able to save his family. He was a rejected rescuer. And the, and the key tagline, I don't know if you remember this, the key tagline from Genesis 37, 50, at the very end, when everything is said and done, uh, Joseph looks at his brothers and said this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So we look at the stoning of Stephen and we see Men not filled with the Holy Spirit. Men who hold positions of power and authority in Israel. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, learned men. Men steeped in Old Testament law. And these men kill Stephen. They meant it for evil. But as we're going to see, God is going to take that and he's going to use it for good. It's incredible. So I guess the point of that last point, the, the, the point of that last number six there is this. Our job, again, our job is to humbly, obediently witness, bear witness in our lives of Jesus Christ. That's our job. The fallout of that is God's responsibility. And we pray that God, consistent with his word, will, will take uh, the actions of evil that's done against us and use it. For good. Why is the stoning of Stephen an example of the church functioning well? Here's, here's the answer. It's a long one, and I apologize for the lots of the fill in the blanks, but here's what I wrote. The stoning of Stephen was an example of the church functioning well because they understood who, who they were going after, unbelievers, people not filled with the Holy Spirit. What to tell them? Tell them about Jesus. The source empowering them. The, the reality that God has taken up residence in our lives in the form of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. The proper response, right? It's a humble obedience. And the cost of the effort, cost even his life, cost him everything. And that God would utilize their efforts. Stephen did not know what God was going to do with his martyrdom. He just knew that God was going to do good with it. So, how does this apply to us? Lots of ways, but there's one primary way. We live in a world in the United States of America that uh, we live in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to what we believe. That should be of little concern. Some, but little. Our job, 
You have family members that don't know Jesus. You have co-workers that don't know Jesus. You have friends that don't know Jesus. You have, God has given you in his sovereignty access into their lives. The question is, what are you going to do with that access? Are you going to be a witness of Jesus and let God take care of the rest? Are you going to be a witness of Jesus and let God take care of the rest? And again, you're looking for the person of peace, right? Unless you're arrested, right? You're looking for the person of peace. And, but don't, don't do this. Don't, bring, don't fail to bring up God in the conversation and never be able to assess whether that, that friend, that coworker, that family member is a person of peace or not because you never brought up God in the conversation. It doesn't have to be super complicated. And if you've known this person for a very long time and it's never come up in the conversation, maybe it's time for you just to say something like this. Put it in your own language, please. Look, we've been friends for 25 years and we've never had a talk about Jesus. It's a huge part. Jesus is a huge part of my life. And so if you're open to it, I'd love to have a conversation with you about why I believe what I believe. And if they say, I like you and everything, but this just got weird and I don't want to talk about this. Okay. You brought it up. You can at least leave them with this. Look, fine. But I'm telling you, it's a huge part of my life and, and I want to tell you about it, but whenever you're ready, right? Uh, but if you do that, I promise you this, God is going to go ahead of you and he's going to soften some hearts and he's going to open up some minds, right? And you're going to have the opportunity to bear witness. So take a step. Plant a seed. Bring him up. God will give you the strength and the power and the words that you need to say. Father, we thank you for this great example of Stephen. And Father, uh, just like our country needs men and women that are so committed to it uh, that they will lay down their lives to preserve it in a greater sense father uh, in a more perfect sense you are worthy of our witness father we recognize that not it's likely that not many of us will be called upon to lay down our lives but perhaps some of us might be someday but what we are called upon father is to bear witness and so i, I pray that you would Help us to see that, that we wouldn't get so caught up in the, the daily task list, the hustle and bustle, the clutter of life that so, can so easily overwhelm us, to get so caught up in those things that we fail to do the chief thing that you've placed us here to do, which is to, to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Can I tell you about him? Lord, we're going to need your help. We're going to need words. We're going to need opportunities. Um, we're going to need encouragement and some boldness that you can provide and supply. And so we're asking for your help. But, Father, we're also saying this, that, that um, we need to practice obedience. 
Won't you help us, Father? Won't you show us, allow us to see some fruit so that we, we will be encouraged along the path to, to keep going? We pray for these things in Jesus' name. The only one who can save, the only one who can rescue us from sin and death, the only one who is worthy of our worship, Jesus the Christ. In his name we pray, amen.